lovely to be here, Jacob. Welcome to Sense Space, and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation that we've already been having uh, before we started recording. Um, you are self-described the practical philosopher, um, described by others as mystic philosopher. Uh, I think I'd describe you as a spiritual philosopher. Um, and needless to say, you've been quite an influence on me and I've been very kind of struck by um, your way of inhabiting language and relating to philosophy and spirituality um, as something which seems to be quite inseparable. So perhaps you might begin by telling me a little bit about, about that, about what you think is the relationship between the two. Hmm. I think a certain kind of philosophy would be called contemplative. <clears throat> Let's take an example from uh, Peter Kingsley's book, Reality. Uh, reality has to do ostensibly with Parmenides and with Empedocles. Uh, Parmenides is ordinarily thought by uh, academic philosophers to be the father of logic. Uh, but Kingsley's kind of a groovy guy. <laughs> and so he takes Parmenides actually to be uh, a mystic. And he takes the, the, the poem we have from Parmenides to be a mystical poem. That seems to be closer to the mark. So um, <clears throat> philosophy and mysticism or philosophy and spirituality of, of, of the kind I'm interested in. Uh, involved beginning with discourse, as I'm doing now, because philosophy is logos-oriented. It does use language in a certain way in, in, in the investigation of the truth of things. But what's really quite experientially revelatory is that <clears throat> the more one is in the way of understanding or the way of truth, the, the more the language starts to give way to uh, everything, really. So that's the, the, the so f f mystical or spiritual or contemplative philosophy is, is really meant to use language as a very beautiful means to reveal to us the non-discursive truth that's always already been here. So there's a bit of a, you know, the joke is at the end, you actually use something to, in the service of seemingly getting somewhere, but it was it was always already here in the first place. So that's what I noticed. And that, this is not though. This is a kind of a, a description of what contemplative philosophy is about. <clears throat> the description or the definition, the partial definition, is actually just a an elaboration on the experiences I began to have over and over again. <laughs> Uh, over over the last decade or so, I just began to realize that this is what was happening. Hmm. 
Yeah, I get a real sense. I mean, one of the things that struck me most about you hearing you was, well, I kind of count you amongst a small handful of um, thinkers who, for whom the use of language seems to articulate um, that the, the use of language is serving to encapsulate and illuminate everything which is outside of it and it doesn't take itself too um, seriously and mm-hmm. as you said the the act of philosophizing um, inquiring with somebody else towards truth has more of a artistic or musical um, quality to it in the sense that you are not so much acting as a logician or constructor of a a building of propositions in which Mm -hmm. to build something else. Um, It's more singing the song of the nature of reality only to serve as tribute to the beauty of the thing in itself. Yes, and what I also discovered is, much to my surprise, is that the the philosophical language I use during philosophical conversations is largely evocative or is something that convokes what it's speaking about. So if I ask you, are you in love? So it could be a descriptive question and it could admit of a binary answer, yes or no. Or it could be an evocative question such that there's a perfume about the question. You start to feel as if there is something loving about the question itself. You start to feel something of love when you hear, are you in love? Am I, am I in love? It's really intriguing, I think, about a philosophical question is that it can actually carry, it it always carries more than what it says. There's always a certain kind of perfume about any question. Hmm. Yeah, it's something about the the way that um, a mystical kind of philosopher or other mystical kind of individuals seem to pose these statements or questions which have the effect, certainly for me when I've encountered them, of kind of hanging in my mind and in the air and being kind of illumined and there's something about them which seems to be a little bit mysterious. Um, mm-hmm. Or it's as if one can continually go back and... Um, revisit and find more in the meaning of the words over time and with contemplation and that in a way is very similar to the experience one has of the music that's most important to you the musicians that are most important to you um of, i mean whatever it is i know you listen to kind of some interesting Gregorian chants and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again. 
I could speak about music, but I think I actually know a little bit less about that than you. I could also say on the score, so to speak, that um, spiritual teachings are like that too. The genuine spiritual teachings are the ones, whether they're occurring in a face-to-face -face setting or whether they're occurring through some sacred text, that they imbue, they, they, they imbue the reader or the listener with the, the flavor, or the taste, or the tone of what's being said. So before we were just talking a little bit, and we were just saying that there's peace right here. There's, there is always peace. So an example, if, if, if one actually feels that here and now, if you feel that here and now, as I do, then the statement itself, there, there is peace. Is not just a proposition, though it has could be understood propositionally. It's fundamentally participatory. I think would be a way of putting it. It asks you to be what it says. It asks you to see in yourself that it's already true. I'm getting a real sense of um, spaciousness of different directions that we might take this in, uh, especially because I've been kind of, well, I've been dialoguing with the avatar of you in my head for a few months um, and wondering, well, what might Andrew have to say about this and that? Um, Probably not very much. <laughs> <laughs> Typical fashion. Um, <laughs> well, perhaps uh, death is a good place to start. Um, when you were having a conversation with Guy Sengstock, conversational mysticism, you said something very striking that the question of death has the effect of um, subsuming, uh, encapsulating all other questions. Um, and so it seems to me, and it's something I've been kind of thinking about a lot in the last many months, um, that right relationship with that um, horizon is so kind of central to everything else that what's more important and getting it getting that one right seems to be that it would kind of uh, waterfall down into every other question that one um, faces and it's also not clear to me what is the horizon of relating to that horizon so to speak and so I've gotten to a point now where I can be 
kind of reflecting on my unbeing um, and presencing that. But then there's a question of, well, how much could I presence that and how much um, presencing that more would allow me to be more present and be, you know, so many kind of moments throughout a day in your life, which might be imbued with a certain amount of um, tragic, beautiful aliveness, were you able to properly relate to that? And for whatever reason, I was, um, I was listening to a conversation with Guy and Chris Mastro Pietro about Dialogos this morning. And one thing they were talking about was this quality of beauty, which is um, slightly horrifying. Um, the kind of the deafness, which is implicit and intrinsic to aliveness. Um, and if you've ever seen like one of the like old Pink Floyd um, animated cartoons, which are very psychedelic of, you know, like a kind of flower is blossoming and dying before your eyes are an apple. You know, it's a very particular image for me is kind of the apple like in aliveness and you can kind of see it coming into aliveness and decay. And then there's this whole other matter of well, when we're in relationship to nature, let's say, um, we tend to be attracted to the flowers and the green and the blossoming aliveness, but also intrinsic to that aliveness is the decomposition and death of those things. But we don't tend to see as much beauty in, you know, the decomposition of a dead cat or something being kind of the nutrients being fed into the, the worms and the fungi and all of that. So I lay these pieces out. <clears throat> so the more that one um, tunes into death, the more that one feels a certain kind of sweet melancholy. With regard to concrete particulars, so that it, it comes to seem as if there is the such a sweetness when you're looking at the wild rose blossoms outside of our house here that we'll have a very short time or the desert willow blossoms that will bloom and, and already are beginning to fall. So now you've, you've, you've uh, gently held in your hands without grasping the sweetness of the beauty. Um, the, the melancholy comes because there's something that's like to, to actually give yourself over to the feeling of loss. Yeah, okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a moth invasion here recently. 
the Sylvie's Rares and they're, they're gray moths. They're, they're fairly unremarkable, but they're remarkable in their unremarkableness. And so they, they were, they seem to be all over the windows and they really were interested in getting into the house. <laughs> I, I tried to tell them there are only so many cashmere sweaters here, but <laughs> and very few at that, but they weren't listening. <laughs> and, and at first it seems as if there's something really sad about the fact that we can't open our windows first thing in the morning because we're in the desert here. And oh, that, 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 that morning air is so lovely. But, but then as we came to uh, observe them, we, and then they would come into the house and, and still today we're putting down glass jars and piece of paper and then urging them outside. But what's been interesting is that very quickly they've been dying and dying in mass. So what began maybe a week ago is almost over. And I find myself feeling actually quite sorrowful before, right? They were just almost, almost a pest. Then, then they come to be regarded with a certain fondness, a certain tenderness. And as the saying goes, before you know it, they're, they're gone. It's a, it's a striking story about how to be much more perceptive and in virtue of being more perceptive, be more awake to the sentient, perceptible world. That's the first part, and I think that was maybe something that um, Guy and Chris may have been speaking about in their own way. The second part isn't spoken about as often, and now we're getting into non-duality, namely, yes, every concrete particular, all the 10,000 things, as Taoism says, are subject to coming and going and coming and going as are our thoughts and feelings and our sensations and everything else. But wouldn't it be interesting to ask ourselves, what are they all coming from? Where are they all going to? And is it true that the, what they're coming from are going to has the same quality? Or might there be something that Buddhists call the deathless or the unborn? So death is always occurring for dharmas, for phenomenal arisings. But what, what is underneath, so to speak, what's underneath it all? Might we say in between? In be, in be, we can use any preposition you want, <laughs> right? In between, underneath, um, around, through all of this, all of the Tao, if you prefer that word, the, the, the Tao is, 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 is uh, deathless. So when, you know, I might joke a little bit with Plato here to the line to philosophize is to learn how to die that's true of concrete particulars, but to philosophize is also to learn how to not to die, <laughs> if you will, which is the enigma I'll pose here. Is there a um, kind of 
can you recollect what it was like in your own path to to shift more into an awareness of that thingness, uh, the Tao. Um, from wherever you found yourself prior to moving into that um, direction and well, perhaps also could put some words to describing what it has been like to come into more awareness of that. Not really. Yeah, bar- barely, barely, barely can I. Um, it's hard to remember what life was like before. And it's not simply the cases of before and after, but um, it's certainly hard to remember exactly what it was like when I was in my mid-20s, but I can try. Um, I guess you could say it was an um, experience of being very enclosed very solid. I, I would have cared about my own concerns and projects. Uh, I certainly would have felt a great sense, uh, as I did, of anger and contempt. <laughs> anger being put into situations with people who aren't, let's say, very bright, uh, so, I, so I thought, and contempt uh, of all the half-baked notions, ideas, proposals, um, and so forth. So the anger, I I was thinking about this a little bit recently because there are some residues once in a while. But I think the anger and contempt ones are are, are (laughs) a very nice flavor of being a separate self, for sure. Um, So that came with a certain kind of, um, you know, you could put a a label would be arrogance. So I can I can kind of barely I, I can kind of recollect what that was like. In short, it was very unpleasant, <laughs> and uh, as I've as I've come into this greater awareness, um, it's it's a little bit easier to talk about what that's like. It's 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 actually quite simple in a way. It's just that more and more of life. Uh, comes to unfold in its own fashion, in its own way, without being interfered with or without involving oneself with its unfolding. And more and more it comes to seem that at a very deep metaphysical level, everything is all right. I know I use that, 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 that expression, everything is all right, in my conversation with Guy. It's hard to find a more plain spoken way of describing what that feels like. It's so yes, things are beautiful and they're joyful and they're peaceful. But there's a kind of sense in which you don't have to poke at things <laughs> or stir them up. Uh, one conversation partner used to speak about uh, likening himself to a raccoon who was always very curious and he just the raccoons tend to dump over the garbage pails and see what's inside. Well, you cease to be a raccoon. <laughs> you cease to poke at everything and knock over the garbage cans and 
try to see what's inside. What's all the dirty, nasty stuff in there? Oh. Hmm. Some property of this more non-dual state of being seems to me to be um, at the practical level of people's experience. Um, what is the root? Well, there is the beautiful and the joyful, and there is also the despairing and tragic. Um, and perhaps a non-dual state requires equal attentiveness and relation to the, the truth from which those, um, those feelings and experiences uh, arise or in another manner of speaking a fuller relationship to reality outside of ourselves requires a fuller relationship to reality within ourselves. And yes, and ultimately there's no difference. Constituted of our, of our experiences and um, relationships and also the things that we see and experience on a day-to-day. Um, just, I mean, perhaps certainly for, for me recently, what, one thing I've found is that my salience, my salience landscape has been changing a lot. Um, I didn't really used to notice old people or children very much and now I notice them both quite a lot um when I see an old person I seem for whatever reason to see the young person inside the old person as well and um take more happiness and seeing children sort of playing in the street or something but I'm also seeing the um homeless and despairing wonder of the world as well with with equal measure um yeah there's a lot more emotional openness for sure i remember seeing um last year uh, this yucca plant we have your, your viewers and listeners wouldn't know that it's a particular plant native to this part of the Southwest and it has spiky leaves and at a certain time of the year it has this long kind of flute-like rod. It's pink and rather garish that comes up and then it has flowers that come out of this. It starts to hang over a little bit and you can start to see it sway in the wind. Well, it must have been maybe around this time last year that I went outside and saw that these had been hanging over a sidewalk since we live in a we live in a city and someone had come by and broken let's say 
I'm going to make this up about seven out of 10 of them, broken them in half. And then we're feeling such a level of sadness, actually not rage in this case, but sadness. The, the level of ignorance that was required and the le level of malice coming from the ignorance that was required was almost unfathomable to me at that moment. So um, provide that as an example, I think, because some people believe that um, being on some kind of meditative path, I think people believe this still, that it makes you just, makes you feel calmer, which is not untrue entirely, but it's pretty inaccurate. It's that it, it really lights things up for you. So the, 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 the sense of anicca or impermanence, the, the, the sense of the death of the, of the flower was uh, very alive to me at that moment. I remember holding on to it for some time and just feeling quite, uh, uh, not shaken by it, but just really quite, uh, just disheartened. Because it was also rather symbolic, right? It was a sign of the ways in which Homo sapiens have, out of ignorance, acted with such a level of malice and ill will. So that's, that's, that's something that I, I've certainly come to feel more. But it's, it's hard to describe how uh, for the one who's on a, a, some kind of deeper um, spiritual path of this kind, how everything just starts to feel so much realer and more saturated. And it comes to feel as if you can't overlook things, whether they're um, matters inside you or uh, the children in the street playing with, playing with balls or the, the, the grandparents or the homeless person. It all has this kind of awakened intensity. Hmm. It's, yeah, it very much seems like the, it's a, a lot closer to kind of walking through a city as a kind of artist might, or at least how I, my imagination of like a 19th century artist wandering through Paris or something might be like, like a Baudelaire or something. Um, mm -hmm. And that quality of um, noticing more in yourself and in others. Um, well, as you said, well, there's less overlooking. Um, and the noticing of overlooking becomes more pronounced as well. It's not just that you're not going to um, not going to ignore when some impulse or some old insecurity or something has come up. It's also that your sensitivity to dropping into that more pronounced. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and it, there comes to seem no difference really between the arising of a pain body if we're using Eckhart Tolle's language and the arising of a homeless person. The, 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 the purported differences between the homeless person being out there and the difficult emotion being in here becomes less pronounced. 
there's just a luminous openness to more and more of life, uh, more and more accommodations, as it were, more and more availability. Now I'm speaking as if we're in the hospitality industry, <laughs> but I think <laughs> the point still stands. Well, it's quite a remarkable thing to come into, to be striving toward not overlooking uh, anything in the context, which seems to constantly be pulling one to overlook, um, often into a television screen above your dinner table in a restaurant. But, um, more broadly. Well, there's a feeling I get that like every aspect or a multitude of aspects from technology to relationship to food and alcohol to the way of speaking, um, feels as if there's a lot of forces pulling attention away from whatever uncomfortable or comfortable present circumstance we find ourselves in, um, whether that's being around um, someone personally and the sense of um, pervasive willingness to distract from unpleasant feelings and what they might be, what the wisdom of those feelings might be, what information they may be imparting about the way one's relating to oneself or the world or at a larger scale, the unpleasant feeling of impending cataclysm uh, of, of the biosphere of the earth. Mm -hmm. So imagine that you find yourself in this circumstance of Being, well, I'm finding it difficult even to describe it because what I'd initially say, well, and Andrew is pushing against all of the, all of the poles of this context we find ourselves in. Um, that pushing would be very incongruent with the feeling of ease which seems to come from just being with what is fully. Mm -hmm. I think I see what you mean. Contemplative philosophy uh, involves asking and trying to answer the most basic questions of human existence and for the way we live to be the enfleshment or embodiment of those answers. 
by contrast, the public philosophy and the kind I also practice uh, involves um, at a collective level, helping people wake up to what they've been taking for granted. And that's a little bit more renegade, if you will. <laughs> They're not inconsistent. One is more loving and tender. The other one is a little bit more of a gentle push. And someone might say, how can this not be inconsistent? Well, in the following manner, if you take Taoism, just as our starting point again, the Tao Te Ching would say that the, the way of things could, could, for lack of a better word, be called the Tao. And it could then be said that the Taoist sage, or if you prefer Taoist sages, are those who live in accordance with the Tao, they, 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 and, and therefore they don't suffer. Uh, they don't suffer in the, the Buddhist sense of dukkha. But there can be certain social, political, economic, and ecological orders that are not actually concordant with the Tao. And I would say modernity, <laughs> by and large, is not actually concordant with the way of things. So, the, the, so then the, the role of a philosopher there would be to keep pointing this out in some rather rude ways. Remember what Socrates was doing in Athens. He was going around and asking people all, of all different classes, of all different social standings, of all different statuses, the questions that they weren't really willing to ask themselves yet. And he did that over and over again with a view to disabusing them of their own claims to knowledge. Well, we need that today as well. <clears throat> so one of the, we probably won't go into today, but one such thing I've been pushing against, gently pushing against is what I call total work. And I'm taking that from Joseph Pieper, who was a 20th century German philosopher. Uh, but there are other things too. You can, you can look at certain inhumane uses of technology um, in, in a very unquaker-like manner if we wanted to. We could look at the destruction of the biosphere, as you pointed out, and the, and the ecocide we may be involved in, very likely are involved in. All of these things, and others to be sure, <clears throat> suggest that we're not actually living in accordance with the fundamental friendliness of life. So, uh, usually there's, uh, there's at least a tradition and, and, um, that, that goes back to what are called crazy adepts or crazy wisdom. According to this tradition, spiritual teachers were actually using stronger tactics, you might say, to, to reveal to their students uh, where they're caught, where the ego self was contracting. I wouldn't necessarily recommend <laughs> some of their tactics, or many of them, they were quite ruthless. But there's something of the flavor of that when we turn to any matter whatsoever in the public or ecological space. And that's going to require a little bit more well, not a verb choice that I'm happy with yet, but there's a little bit more of uh, revealing what continues to be overlooked <laughs> in no uncertain terms. As if to say, don't you see? Don't you see that you can't keep turning away? So that's just a way of trying to suggest that these are two 
different faces, one more inward facing and one more outward facing, but are not actually inconsistent. But it's to say rather that, um, uh, it's to say rather that, that one needs to use skillful means of paya in any given case. I think sometimes that people will, um, there's so many different pictures of, of philosophy. Um, and sometimes people will counter me in a, in a philosophical conversation. It would be all sort of love and sweet and warm. And then they'll read something I read and they wonder, is this this quote, same person? Well, yes, of course. It's just a, a different phenomenon, a different context. And it requires a different approach, I think. Mm. There's a certain um, delicacy, or is that I was talking about appetizers. Um, is that right? Gentleness to, or skillfulness involved in this kind of truth work um, and we did a marvelous job of kind of describing the phenomenology of what that is when you talked with Daniel Fawson about existential openings um, the sense of discerning the thing which is not being said um, the thing which is being avoided. Um, or tiptoed around. Mm. So I want to learn a little bit more about how we might engage in that. But before, I think it's worth drawing out the implications of the encounter itself because what it seems to seems to demonstrate is that mm, language is not what it appears to be um that the philosopher is um able to discern the thing that's not being said speaks to more of a kind of embodied um energetic experience of the world and of other people um, yeah. and so a large part of orienting towards that is perhaps that more um, embodied attunement yeah. um, and for whatever reason I also have a sense that the the capacity and the depth to which one can be grounded in that is directly related to one's deeper grounding in oneself. In other words, what takes place when one is in solitude with one's own deepest, um, deepest thoughts and contemplating the kind of depths of one's emotion and heart and spirit. Um, something about the dropping into and the integration of um, those things seems to enable 
this deepest sort of stack of capacity when you're experiencing other people. Um, Let me come in for just a moment too. I think that's true. Um, additionally, I would say that it, it at least happened for me and then through um, philosophizing with people over the last decade. And um, these are not my favorite terms, but Malcolm Gladwellian language would be around 20,000 hours or so, so twice as much as he's referring to in one of his, one of his books, just to get some of the sense of uh, how, how, how much it's been. And then just after a while, there's a, there's a kind of a, yes, an embodied attunement to the, the kind of wiggles, <laughs> the wiggles someone's going through and not quite saying what is true. It's like, uh, you're kind of speaking around it a little bit or being in the neighborhood of it. Or, uh, and, and I'm not suggesting the person knows that this is what's happening, but but there's a, there's a sense that it can't quite be said. Uh, mm. And after a while, the person comes to discern, first of all, oh, I'm not quite going straight to the heart of the matter. I'm needlessly speaking around it. That's kind of the first insight. The second insight is to start to be able to actually drop down into that level of heart openness or heart awareness or uh, felt understanding. So yes, I think you're right to say that it can happen through deep solitude and through very deep investigations of oneself. I'm also just suggesting it can happen additionally in and through what Buber called, Martin Buber called the I thou. And there's a the ability to see when someone is, how to put that? Uh, mm -hmm. Resisting, I guess. So they all kind of come kind of down to resistances. Um, here's, here's an example. It's a little bit vague, but I was speaking with a man recently, a man living in New York City, and um, he's really erudite, and he's very good with, with uh, sophisticated intellectual uses of language. So I ask a question such as, um, Okay, where does it hurt? And the, the answers are just you know very, very rococo, you know, very elaborate. And <laughs> like no 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 no, where does it hurt? <laughs> you can see there's a kind of Zen style I have. You can tell there's a flowering of these really intricate and sumptuous uh, answers. But it's not really, it's not really the thing. And so I would say that, that what's happening there is, is basically an ongoing form of habitual resistance. The, 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 
it's fine if you're going to be in um, an academic setting or a meeting and you need to use your intellectual powers in ways that are quite sophisticated and they require nuance and they require making distinctions. But if I just ask, what hurts? What hurts? That's just one example. Then there's only, <laughs> there's only what hurts. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> not everything else is actually not the answer. Mm. So I hope that, well, it's still a, 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 a rather, unfortunately, vague um, example, but it, it, it certainly points us in the right direction. Noticing that so too is the, um, the language, the kind of verbal artifice that this other person is producing. Mm -hmm. Is not is not the thing in itself. It's not the the hot experience of that person. Um, yes, he's telling me everything that doesn't quite hurt, <laughs> and, and, I, and I hope it's clear that I'm not quote unquote picking on that person. I, I I love him dearly. It's a very common, it's a very common approach that human beings take today, particularly those who have some academic or um, any kind of educational credentials. And the intellect's been sharpened, and we get very accustomed to using it. It doesn't serve us here. Um, so, so too then, when you propose the question, uh, whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more at play than the words of the question. Um, there are many ways because I've had interestingly I had the very experience of this uh, um, someone I was with who was quite sort of difficult to get to the point with um, and I had this feeling of there's something that I really need to say to this person or they really need to make sure that they've underst understood this thing um, and this the, the way that they were being made it very difficult to do that and so I kind of went out into um, the forest by myself and was kind of contemplating and stuff and getting really in touch with myself and then I came back and went to have this conversation and was in such a state of like loving openness at the time of doing it that it was almost able to very seamlessly um, guide towards that which needed to be expressed, which was a difficult thing to express, but because it was from a place of, um, loving open-heartedness that was the, the thing which allowed the the heart of the matter in the other person to be reached and conversely um many times there's some matter of truth that needs to be brought out with someone a family member or a close friend or something 
but then there's also the reactive part in myself. There's also the kind of, there's the truth and there's what I need to get toward that's not being seen. But then there's also some aspect of me, which is not quite completely open, not quite completely at ease. No, not the whole thing is the truth. Be a wit- take your stand as the witness of all of that. The whole thing. The matter at hand, as well as whatever reactivity arises. The loving openness is lovingly open, or the witnessing openness, or the witnessing awareness, whatever you tend to call that, is the same. It, so to speak, stands behind both uttering the heart of the matter and the reactivity. As, as Muji, the, the, the Advaita Vedanta teacher, has said to have said, I haven't heard him say it myself, we are everything that is not out in front. So whatever's out in front, we are not that at a certain level of understanding. That's what the teaching would say. So the, whatever's uttered, which goes to the heart of the matter, is out in front. And the reactivity is like a, it's like a geyser or a, 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 an elephant trunk that comes out of nowhere, or some would call it a storm or tsunami. But whatever, it, whatever metaphor you use, it's still, it's still out in front. It's at this level of understanding and the teaching, it's still not me. I think that makes it a lot clearer. Um, because what I'm, what I'm getting at is that sometimes there's some truth that needs to be expressed and the reception of the expression of that is also receiving the, the reactivity, so to speak. And what you're showing is that it's, the real difference is whether I am also conscious of that and have fully felt my side of the matter as well, so much so that it's almost indistinguishable from their side. Um, yes, I mean, there are different approaches. One would be to actually look at what some will call the baggage beforehand and to release it. But let's just suppose that there's a case in which you were to say this to this other person. Then there's the heart of the matter, and there's your reactivity. But I'm saying that, uh, to use an oft-used metaphor, you are, you are the field, and both of these things are flowers, just different kinds. The utterances are flowers, and the reactivity is a different flower, but they're all occurring in the luminous, open, welcoming field of aware being. That's the understanding at this level. And then as time goes on, it changes some and deepens. So that's why I was kind of joking and saying, the truth is the whole of it, right? It's the whole of what's out in front. It's not just what needs to be uttered to the other person. 
You know, one might say the truth is the entire package <laughs> for being a little bit cheeky. That really clarifies and distills. There's a lot in that. Um, So certainly not so straightforward to to fully um, be in an enacted understanding of that always. Um, and therein lies a continual um, uh, work and practice. I think so. There's um, one other area which was kind of swimming in the back of my mind which I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, yeah. It's only just popped into my head now, and it seems in some way in relationship to this, um, which is, I guess, one area that I don't hear a great deal spoken about is what the implications of this kind of um, spiritual circumspect way of living are for um, relationship and sexuality. Um, oh, good. <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> stage, I guess we could talk about I'm not um, in, a, in a relationship right now, and I'm sure you have much yeah. wisdom to share at the level of kind of... My first, my, my first cheeky answer is that it's a lot more fun. <laughs> 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 Go on, please ask your question. I want to presence the, the kind of pre, pre-marital, pre-even um, relationship stage of, of interaction. Mm-hmm. So, to speak in the sense of, well, in this, in this previous discourse, we're talking about how do we hold the emotion of the other and the emotion of ourselves and hold all of the, the complete kind of interaction of the two and be in mm-hmm. awareness of that. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that map onto sexuality, so to speak, You're encountering somebody and then you've got your um, magnetism toward them, and they, then there's the sexuality of the other. And this mm-hmm. seems to me to be a very kind of, well, it's obviously when it comes to mm-hmm. organized religion, there's plenty to say about uh, right conduct and right understanding when it comes to Catholicism and Islam and stuff. but. Yeah, to hear your thoughts on, on what perhaps how 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 coming into greater awareness might relate to not coming into um, sexual suppression or something like that. Yeah, oh, that's that's good. So <clears throat> that would be a, another um, misunderstanding of 
it's called non-dual spirituality. The misunderstanding would say that the, the, the more that one comes to see it, there's just one reality, and the one is this one reality, the more um, one kind of checked out of living in a cave and without desire. We have a lot of images of desert fathers, if I may speak of Christian mysticism, or of even Ramana Harshi, who was purportedly found living in a cave before they mount. You can think of all these sorts of hermits and <laughs> people of that sort. But <clears throat> it hasn't been accurate in my experience. So <laughs> and, and <laughs> instead, what's very interesting is that when it comes to, let's not even call it sexuality, but actual sex, there's the arising of desire, sexual desire. Uh, there's more playfulness because there are, any, there are fewer and fewer story, stories surrounding that sexual desire. Uh, there's more openness, sexual engagement, because we've also dropped stories about um, words like taboo or shouldn't or oughtn't or whatever. Right? Um, there's also much more sensuous engagement because it's not mediated by a screen. It's not like, oh, breasts are lovely or not lovely or whatever, right? There isn't that, you're not thinking that, that, that thought is not arising. There's just a sensorium of sorts. Um, and there's, you know, there, there's, there's much greater actually awareness of what's happening here and now, uh, physically, energetically, as you pointed out, emotionally and otherwise. Um, I can probably say more about this, but what I'm trying to get at is that our figure of a sage as being someone who is um, sexless or something like that is a, really a mistake. It actually, there's, a, there's, there's more energy. You know, one doesn't have to be too tantric about this. It's just much more energy, much more aliveness, much more vibrancy, and a, and, and a lot fewer hangups. So I should also say on the other side, though, that it's a little bit like what I say about total work. Sex becomes interesting and lovely when it occurs, but it also isn't fetishized. You can pick it up, so to speak, be engaged in it, and let it go. And, and not think that this is, you know, I'm obviously very unfreudy in this sense. I'm kind of non-20th century in this in this sense. I don't think that sex is anything special, except insofar as everything we experience is special. So I also don't think it's sort of the key to a relation, a sexual, it's not a key to a romantic relationship per se either, because there are all sorts of, all sorts of intimacies you'd imagine in a, in a wonderful, loving relationship, one of which would be sex, among many others. So it kind of opens, it, it allows for things to be a lot less serious, a lot more playful, and, uh, Defetishized, such that you can be able to think. I mean, I love hugging my wife. We hug a lot in the morning. It's beautiful. It's not as though I think I'm hugging her. Why can't we have sex now? <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I, I I love hugging her in the morning. It's it's an, and it's beautiful unto itself. And I love having sex with her. And when we don't have sex, that's fine too. So I hope that gives a different, I'm not claiming that I'm a sage. I'm just trying to reveal that the, 
the, the, the spiritual life is not a sexless life by any means. Um, if anything, it opens, you know, it's not a 1960s countercultural <laughs> movement either. It's sort of, it's being in right relation with every aspect of life. One of those things is sex. Yeah, what you said about kind of fetishization seems really pertinent. Um, that capacity to kind of be with it fully, be with, um, yeah, be with sexual relationship, even, you know, before sex, just being with opposite gender relationship or the same gender, whatever. Um, mm -hmm being in sexual relationality fully when it's happening. But then there's something very critical about the, the desiring in the absence of, and then the, um, the felt sense of absence. Um, That's fine too. That's part of it. So <laughs> it would be a mistake of a Buddhist teaching to say, um, it's a little bit of a mistake to say, uh, let's speak about non-attachment here. Right. That's a mistake. That's no, it's, it's, there's a difference between missing someone as a phenomenal experience, which is wonderful in its own way and tanha or uh, craving clinging. You do, one does need to learn the difference, mm. but missing someone you've just begun meeting and you're kind of enamored with this person and you're fond and, and, uh, and, the, and you, you just had this kind of, you had the 18 hour date or something like that. It was supposed to be an hour and it was 18 hours. And then you, you, you start missing that person. Oh, well we have, we have a word for what you do here. You write poetry, right? You know, there's a, there's a phenomenal rising. I miss this person. Oh, I write poetry. I see. That's not the same as, um, we would get into pathologies of sorts if, if I had needed this, I was needy, I had to have this person, when the person wasn't here, I couldn't live. Then we're getting into craving and clinging in Buddhist language. But I worry that once again, I'm trying to set the record straight, I worry once again that we think that um, we misuse some of these spiritual teachings, perhaps with a view to uh, not finding a middle path. I may use Buddhist language, either being overly ascetic, which, I've, which is something that I've done in my life, or being overly kind of hedonic. The key is actually to find the sweet spot. The sweet spot says, oh, I can miss this person because I'm really fond of him or her. Okay, I write poetry. <laughs> right? but, but if I find, sorry, one more thing. But if I do start to find myself, uh, I guess you could say in psychological language involved in some kind of codependency, such that I couldn't possibly, let's say, imagine my life without this person in any way, shape, or form. Then something has gone awry, and I am involved in craving. And then, then, then there would need to be a, a good investigation of myself to see what it is, what it is I'm holding on to, what kind of baggage I have. Because in a really beautiful non-dual relationship, it's very clean and clear to use Ken Wilber's terms. Both both persons are very clean, so they're not always involved in forms of reactivity. In which case, there can be more of a of a very deep intimacy. I actually also want to mention one other thing here that that came from um, early teachers. I remember when I was 
uh, first on this path and I went and spoke with it. We, both my wife and I were, we'd met years prior and we've been kind of on the same path together, but we really got involved in Zen Buddhism. And we asked, well, what would happen if we were both fully enlightened? Would we still love each other in any kind of specific way? Uh, and it kind of freaked us out <laughs> if the answer was no. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poor question. Uh, it really is, but it is something that people think about. Um, it's a poor question because the, the, the more that one becomes, the more that one lets go of one's forms of suffering, uh, the clearer it is that love, um, love of this particular being, so my wife, of other beings just shines forth very fully. So I can only tell you that I myself had to actually go through a number of these pictures or conceptions. You know, as, the, as the saying goes, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> you need to find different ways of killing the stories, the pictures, the conceptions, the misconceptions, to get around to the fact that insofar as there is embodiment, insofar as there is sentient life, there will be the arising of desire, one kind of which would be sexual desire. And then there would be beautiful ways of fulfilling it, beautiful non-pathological ways of fulfilling desire. Yeah, as you're kind of making that very subtle distinction as, as regards desire, I felt like I kind of... You can feel some sort of resonance or like commonality and I guess stacking. Um, when we were speaking earlier, kind of about um, death um, at, at the level of, of people in, in your life, but also um, nature and kind of life and its decomposition into something else. Um, that there can be that holding of longing or yeah, longing in a way that is lo loving, but, but which is still congruent with this um, or, or, or rightness, which you describe. Yes. It seems to me that the, with the matter of sexuality or even a, a romantic desire or of, you know, everyone in quarantine has gotten very well acquainted with mm -hmm. solitude and loneliness. Um, there's a distinction between solitude and loneliness as well. But um, sure. let's come back to longing just for a moment. Longing can be beautiful, uh, and quite quite beautiful. And. There's a difference between longing and again what Buddhists would call um, the lack of equanimity evident and being pushed and being pulled. That's what it often feels like in our lives. We have some kind of emotion as if we're being yanked in some way or contracted or locked around. But if you can actually just be like a, a beautiful cello, so to speak, and the longing is a resonant sound, it's it's fine and it is to be welcomed. So it's 
I'm not sure if this is true, but I'm at least with regard to some of your listeners, I'm trying to make sure that people don't mistake, um, don't continue to make mistakes about spirituality. But spirituality should not, I hope, should be seen as being somehow um, ethereal and not temporal, as somehow sexless and not interested in sex, among other things as unartistic rather than artistic and so on. Um, Non-duality would say it's, it's, all, it's all of these and more, right? If, if there is just one reality, and if I am this one reality, then it's, it's like Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I'm great, I contain multitudes. There's just the multitudinous that is to be welcomed and celebrated. One of those, one of those experiences is longing. I wouldn't want to be without longing. <laughs> it's just one of those lovely phenomenal risings that, as Nietzsche would say, it's the, it becomes the condition of possibility for a true artistic form. Yeah, I think Nietzsche probably had a, his fair share of that mm -hmm. um probably more um all right revisit your cello analogy i think we could char characterize it as the silence between the notes or between the the movements mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless essential um mm -hmm. that also allows us to hold on to something so long as we're at a pre-linguistic level that could prima facie seem contradictory, but is not. I can feel peacefulness and ache in my heart. Right? Aching, pining, longing, and, and peacefulness. <laughs> in ordinary language, it seems as if I can't have both without one being true and the other one being false or without there being a strict contradiction. You can feel the depths of peace. And also, for example, on a certain occasion, sweet longing. Without that peace being in any way diminished. This has been wonderful to speak with you, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me today, Jacob. I'm feeling very peaceful at the conclusion of our conversation, um, more so than I was coming into it. So there is some proof in the pudding. Yeah, well, I am feeling that as well. Well, thank you for it.